Section two of Charles the Second by Osmondary. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter one. Prince of Wales. Part two. It is probable that the royal messenger was able to report unconditional capitulation. But if ever the child were father to the man, the parentage is shown in his own words. My lord, I would not have you take too much physic, for it doth always make me worse, and I think it will do the like with you. I ride every day and am ready to follow any other directions from you. Make haste to return to him that loves you, Charles P., for my lord of Newcastle. At the end of three years, in August 1641, Newcastle resigned his charge. His successor, William Seymour, marquis of hartford was like himself a man of great honour great interest in fortune and estate and of an universal esteem over the kingdom hartford was however and he felt it singularly unfit for an office which he accepted purely out of obedience to the king and it was a misfortune that at eleven years of age the care of the quick-witted vigorous boy should have fallen into the hands of a governor of an age not fit for much activity and fatigue, who loved and was even so much wedded to his ease that he loved his book above all exercises. That book against too much of which Newcastle had felt it unnecessary to warn his pupil. Before this change took place, Charles had already made his first public appearance, for on May 11, 1641, he carried his father's letter to the Lord's the last attempt to save Strafford's life. Of all the strange lessons that he was now learning, none could have been stranger than this, that his stately father should be forced to sue and should sue in vain for the life of a servant. Newcastle was right. No book lore could match such teaching. During the spring of 1642 he was kept close by his father's side, for it was believed that the parliament were proposing to take him by force from theobald's whither the king had gone on his way to newmarket and york and thus to frustrate the suspected design of removing him abroad in may as war came nearer he was appointed captain of a troop of horse the prince of wales own which was raised as the king's special guard and it was probable then that van dyck's very beautiful portrait of him was painted as matters grew ever more threatening, Hartford's services were needed to secure the West Country, where his influence was great, and a third governor was chosen for the boy. The selection was a curious and unfortunate one. Clarendon has difficulty in finding words sufficient to express the contempt in which the Earl of Berkshire was held. His interest and reputation were less than anything but his understanding. He was appointed for no other reason but because he had a mind to it, and his importunity was troublesome. A man of any who bore the name of a gentleman, the most unfit for that province, or any other that required any proportion of wisdom and understanding for the discharge of it. It must not be forgotten when accounting for Charles's later career that at the most receptive and dangerous time of a boy's life, especially a boy of southern precocity of physical development, 
and under circumstances in which he could not but be constantly witness of every form of license he was placed for several years in the nominal charge of a born fool for the moment this was of little importance the king was careful to keep charles near his person and thus he was present at the ominous setting up of the royal standard and in the marching and countermarching before edge hill of what actually befell him and his brother james at the battle the accounts are not easily reconciled although there is no doubt that the boys were in real danger and apparently more than once at the beginning of the fighting the prince's troop obtained leave to charge in the first line while he and james were entrusted to harvey the celebrated physician harvey put them as he believed under cover took a book from his pocket and was speedily lost to all less interesting matters until he was aroused by a cannon-ball grazing the earth beside them when he judged well to shift his position of a later and critical moment of the battle when balfour's charge had broken the royal infantry and lindsay had fallen we have three eye-witnesses james described many years afterwards how the old earl of dorset being commanded by the king my father to go and carry the prince and myself up a hill out of the battle refused to do it and said he would not be thought a coward for ever a king's son in christendom clarendon however then of course plain mr hyde according to his own account obeyed the king's command to wait upon them and not to leave them until they were in safety on their way the party suddenly fell in with a body of parliamentary horse whom in the dim evening light they mistook for their own friends and escaped capture only through the devotion of one of the king's equerries and lastly there is sir john hinton physician in ordinary to charles who when writing down his reminiscences in sixteen seventy nine and evidently referring to this incident relates how your majesty was unhappily left in a large field at which time i had the honour to attend your person and seeing the danger i did with all earnestness most humbly but at last somewhat rudely importune your highness at which your highness was pleased to tell me you feared them not and drawing pistol resolved to charge them but i did prevail but one of those troopers being excellently mounted broke his rank and coming full career i dismounted him in closing and mr matthews a gentleman pensioner rides up and with a pole-axe decides the contest it is difficult to believe that all this happened without hyde's knowledge but it is equally difficult to believe that hinton would put down for the king's eye a false relation of circumstance which happened at an age when such things are fixed upon the memory during the king's abortive march upon london and through the succeeding eighteen months charles remained with the earl of berkshire at oxford in june sixteen forty four he rode out with his father on that summer's campaign was present with him at the battle of coperty bridge and witnessed the consternation which followed the news of the rout of rupert and his old tutor newcastle at marston moor he saw the surrender of essex foot at lostwithiel and the misconduct of goring by which the cavalry was allowed to escape was by the king's side at the second battle of newbury and indeed throughout all the hard work of the six months campaign 
and returned with him to Oxford at the end of November. Here he remained for the next three months under the foolish Earl, during which we have but one notice of him of significance, pointing to an interpretation of Newcastle's instructions not to the taste of his dignified father. Insomuch that at St. Mary's he did once hit him on the head with his staff when he did observe him to laugh at sermon time upon the ladies who sat against him. And now Charles was witness of the growing dejection, discontent, and jealousies which were already beginning to paralyze the royal cause. He saw, as far as a boy's eyes could see, one side seeming to fight for monarchy with the weapons of confusion, and the other to destroy the king and his government with all the principles and regularity of government. Before he was fifteen years of age, the doctrine of divine right preached from the Oxford pulpits must have become a mere jingle of words in the face of the practical contradictions to which he saw it every day subjected at the hands of both friend and foe. Nor was his scepticism likely to be lessened when to unboy him, by putting him into some action and acquaintance with the business out of his own sight, the king sent him, in the beginning of 1645, into the west, in the hope that his presence might cure the factions and animosities which were rife. Nervously anxious that in case of his own death or captivity, the heir to the throne should be ready to take his place, his father strictly enjoined that he was to keep his residence in a safe garrison, and on no account to engage in any martial actions or be present in any army. To support him in his new dignity, his first real entrance into public work, the king gave him a council of the highest character, the Duke of Richmond, the Earl of Southampton, Lords Capel, Hopton, and Coldpepper, and Hyde, now Sir Edward, the Chancellor of the Exchequer. With them was associated the Earl of Berkshire. The King had realized the unfitness of this appointment, but he applied two remedies. The one was to lessen the Prince his reverence and esteem for his governor, which, as Clarendon remarks, was not necessary the other to leave the governor without any more authority than every one of the council had, and so much less as the prince had a better esteem of every one of them than he had of him, and so left him without a governor, which would have been a little better if he had been without the Earl of Berkshire too. Charles was created Duke of Cornwall, General of the Western Association, and to soothe the pride of Rupert, who would accept a commission from no less a person, generalissimo of all the king's forces in england and wales his journey from oxford in an incessant downpour of rain and in great straits for food was less distressing than the scene of indescribable melancholy at oxford or that of warring ambitions among the officers of undisciplined violence and rapine among the troops and of unfulfilled promises in which he found himself on his arrival at bristol no provision had been made, and he was compelled to borrow money from Lord Hopton to obtain the merest necessaries of life. Under the tutelage of Hyde, which lasted in much the same form for twenty years, he assumed his place in the council, and learned, as far as Hyde would allow him, to take an active part in business, to judge and to speak. But it is clear from remarks made by himself years later that he was subjected to the same kind of judicious repression 
that is generally considered desirable for a lively schoolboy in the presence of grave men charles and the council did their best to carry out the mission of introducing order into chaos in the west and his cousin rupert gave him as always unselfish and loyal support but the task was hopeless from the first goring and grenville the former a drunkard and debauchee the very type of the rakehelly cavalier thwarted all prudent measures by their insubordination while they made the country ring with their reckless robbery and outrage and alienated all sympathy from the royal cause in april charles summoned the commissioners of the western counties to meet him at bridgewater here the public difficulties were more or less arranged but here too a new element of anxiety for the prince's counsellors was introduced his official nurse in childhood mrs wyndham was wife of the governor of bridgewater and through his extraordinary kindness for this woman he was diverted from all serious application to business even if he were not encouraged by her in the grosser tastes in which it is clear from an anecdote repeated by hyde and from the veiled language of other passages the boy was already initiated being a woman of great rudeness and a country pride nihil muliebre praeter corpus gerens she valued herself much upon the power and familiarity which her neighbours might see she had with the prince of wales and therefore upon all occasions and company would use great boldness towards him and sometimes in dancing would run the length of the room and kiss him she omitted no opportunity of trying to weaken his respect for his father and finding that the council was not amenable to her private designs of benefit for herself and her children she did her best to harass them by creating an opposite faction among other members of his family in which effort with the help of the earl of berkshire she was only too successful from these influences the council removed the prince as soon as possible by returning to bristol where they found fresh distractions caused by the intrigues of goring whose jealousy of rupert knew no bounds after a bitter dispute before the king at oxford rupert's influence backed by the prince's council so far prevailed that goring whose ambition was fixed upon securing for himself the chief command of the west was sent back with his desire nominally unattained but he bore with him nevertheless letters which gave him admittance to all consultations of the council and other concessions which made him practically independent these letters were delivered by goring when the prince driven from bristol by the plague was on his way to barnstaple the council resolutely opposed his pretensions while he in despite of them assumed absolute freedom of control under such circumstances organized resistance to the parliamentary forces rapidly broke down at barnstaple charles heard of the disaster at naseby and a month later after goring's ruinous defeat by fairfax at langport he was compelled to retire farther west to launceston there he received explicit instructions from the king that in case of danger of falling into the rebels hands he should at once go to france where he was to be under his mother's care in all matters except religion with which his old tutor brian duppa was to deal against this order the council led by hyde whose jealousy of french influence was inveterate warmly protested and they suggested ireland or scotland instead 
the feeling that the prince should not leave british soil was expressed at public meetings at exeter when he was there in september and a little later in cornwall where petitions were presented desiring him under no adverse fortune to go to france a second time after rupert's surrender at bristol the king declared his wishes and again the council refused to endorse them pushed ever farther west charles reached truro there it was resolved to make a great effort for the relief of exeter and starting on december twenty sixth he marched by bodmin to tavistock and thence to totnes another letter from his father had previously been sent to him absolutely forbidding recourse to scotland or ireland but ordering him in necessity to retire to denmark and now still a fourth arrived insisting that he should leave the kingdom at once this however was the precise point upon which the council did not hesitate to renew their resistance to the king's will they returned an answer that should the need for flight arise they would send the prince to scilly or jersey since it was imperative that he should continue within the king's dominions the time for this came very speedily all hope of relieving exeter vanished and the advance of fairfax pushed the disheartened royalists back into cornwall on february fifteenth sixteen forty six hopton who had been placed in command fought the final action of the war at torrington and on the seventeenth charles was driven to the last stronghold pendennis castle there he remained until a design to kidnap him was discovered when hyde and colepepper having consulted by letter with the other members of the council who were at a distance determined to send him to scilly jersey being rejected on account of its nearness to france at ten o'clock on the night of monday march second with hyde culpepper and berkshire charles went on board the phoenix frigate and on the afternoon of wednesday landed in safety but destitute at st mary's culpepper was at once sent to paris to ask for help in men and money from the queen while hyde and berkshire remained in attendance it was soon clear that the stay in scilly could not be prolonged the place itself was bare of provisions and during six weeks nothing arrived from cornwall mrs fanshawe the wife of charles secretary gives a vivid picture of the straits to which they were reduced when we had got to our quarters near the castle where the prince lay i went immediately to bed which was so vile that my footman never lay in a better and again we were destitute of clothes and meat and fuel for half the court to serve them a month was not to be had in the whole island and truly we begged our daily bread of god for we thought every meal our last the council sent for provisions to france which served us but they were bad and a little of them charles and his attendants soon wearied as much of inaction as of discomfort for there was neither amusement nor occupation to be had on the island and after the life of excitement which he had passed the change for an active boy was intolerably irksome moreover it was clearly necessary to seek safer as well as better quarters for there was imminent danger of capture by the cruisers of the parliament his council were as before reluctant to go to jersey they feared that the jealousy which would be aroused in england by this proximity to france might be prejudicial to his father's safety but charles now produced a letter which by the king's command he had kept secret for nearly a year 
wherein he was ordered to do nothing that might endanger his own person, either to rescue his father or even to save his life. Accordingly, with the consent of the whole council except Berkshire, and attended by a retinue of three hundred persons, council, grooms of the bedchamber, gentlemen of the privy chamber, cupbearer, carver, master of the robes, pages of the backstairs, pages of honour, equerries, chaplains, barber, and others not officially connected with the household, the prince embarked on a small frigate, the proud black eagle, with two other vessels in attendance, and eluding the parliamentary fleet, arrived safely at Elizabeth Castle on the evening of Friday the 17th. He was received with respectful sympathy, and since there was no fitting residence on the island itself, continued to live there during his stay. End of section 2